Kia ora, and welcome to this special episode of The Front Page and On The Campaign. I'm Damien Veduto, host of The Front Page, and I'm joined by the co-hosts of On The Campaign, Georgina Campbell and Hamish Fletcher. We're here today to discuss the results of election 2023, and as the polls predicted, it was a bloodbath for Labour. Their caucus has nearly halved, several key MPs are out, and while Chris Hipkins has not yet resigned, it seems that is the inevitable outcome. But for National Enact, it was a case of celebrations. Christopher Luxon is set to be our next Prime Minister. National swung a number of seats their way, and so did ACT. With the two parties holding 61 seats at this stage, with a 62nd likely after the Port Waikato by-election next month, it does raise the prospect of NZ First being needed. But it doesn't change the fact that we are getting a change in government. So let's throw this to our group. What drew people to National Enact? Starting with you, Georgina. I think this election result actually says more about Labour, to be honest, than it does National. I think people were really fed up with Labour's lack of delivery. It felt like there were so many promises that were made that never materialised. And Chris Hipkins, you know, came in at the beginning of this year. He put a whole load of policies on the bonfire. I think initially that was received quite well with the public. But then I think it got to the point where the public sort of started wondering what Labour actually stood for. You know, you had the GST off fruit and veggies panned by experts. I think it deepened that scepticism. Free dental care, that felt very Labour. But, you know, it wasn't coming in until 2026. And I don't feel that National had like a a huge drawcard policy either for people to mobilise around. I think it could have been tax cuts, but that sort of unraveled when, you know, there started um, being serious questions about how they'd actually pay for that, thinking the foreign buyers tax here, you know, or the fact that only 3,000 families would actually get the full $250 tax cut. And a lot of National's promises involve just killing off Labour policies, right? Like whether that's three waters or light rail. And I think National was certainly talking about the right things on the campaign trail, like increasing crime levels. Um, challenges in education, overworked health system. But I think a lot of this election result is just down to the fact that people were fed up with Labour. I think people were doing it tough across New Zealand. And when that happens, you see people who want to see a change in their circumstances. And to do that, they think they can change the government and get that. And inflation is coming down, but people are still doing it tough at the supermarket interest rates are tracking up. So if you've got a mortgage, people are feeling the pinch there. Or if you're in a rental, uh, those interest rate increases have been passed on by your landlord with rent increases. People are really, really doing it hard and they want something different. And despite what people might say about how much a national tax cut would give them, people are on the lookout for more than they have right now. I wrote a column a couple of weeks ago about this idea that Labour was lacking identity, and it does feel a little bit like that, that the party is lacking that sense of differentiation between national and Labour, that people were left uncertain, especially after their policy bonfire, they were left a little uncertain about what Labour actually stood for. Hamish, do you think that that hurt them a little bit? Yes, and I do think there is some blowback from the Jacinda Ardern era, people in Auckland in particular. Uh, will still be sore about a lockdown that some commentators thought went longer than needed to for the situation with uh, MIQ and the way in which New Zealanders who are overseas and looking to come back were treated. 
Admittedly, it's difficult to come up with policy as you're going and it's easy to govern in hindsight, but there is still an element of antipathy about how that situation was handled that I think cost Labour last night. COVID-19, like everybody talks how Labour, at least initially, responded so well to that crisis and saved jobs and lives. But but I think the problem is, is that you know, when Labour sort of referred to the good job that it did on that on the campaign trail, conveniently leaving out, you know, the, the lengthy lockdowns that Auckland suffered. And also, I think people want to move on from COVID-19, you know, so it's sort of like, I think that's the problem for Labour is that this thing that they can take credit for in some respects, people are kind of over that now and they want to try and get on with their lives. So when those early results were coming in last night, Paddy Gower declared this a blue Nami. I mean, that was within when 10% of the votes were in, we were already declaring just a complete blue wash across electorates across the country. Those results have narrowed a little bit. So where do you think we could stand in the next three weeks? Is Winston Peters going to step it back into that kingmaker role if that majority narrows a little bit further? Definitely. You look at the special votes, uh, those votes make up 20% of the total. So there's room for some big swings. And with the National Act majority looking so slim, even if there is a majority with the overhang, I wouldn't be surprised if Christopher Luxon uh, hasn't already been on the phone to Winston to discuss possible options, whether that's a coalition, whether that's a confidence and supply agreement. Uh, It's something that Uh, will definitely be front of mind because with the likes of what's going to happen with the Port Waikato by-election, it's just not certain that National can govern alone with ACT as it was looking like would happen in the first 10% or 20% of the votes being counted last night. Yeah, and and National Campaign Chairman Chris Bishop, in some interviews that he's done this morning, he's made a real point of of pointing out that the special vote turnout has historically favoured the left. It's almost sort of like he's managing expectations around where this could go as we sort of have this nervous wait for the next few weeks while special votes are counted, or nervous wait at least for National and, and Christopher Luxon. I think they will have to pick up the phone to Winston. I think you're right. Hamish, that it's a very slim majority at this stage and there's all sorts of things that could happen. Yes, National's likely to pick up that extra seat in the Port Waikato by-election, but the resurgence of Te Pāti Māori in the Māori seats, you know, could deliver a further overhang. It was interesting uh, listening to Winston Peters last night, you know, he sort of said, look, if we can help, we will help. And then in Luxon's election night speech, he congratulated Peters, um, you know, specifically mentioned him and said he appreciated that comment that he was willing to help if needed. While that might be true, it was still an awful night for Labour politicians. I mean, Michael Wood lost his seat, Labour lost Napier and the East Coast, and then former Labour MP Mika Faiteri also lost her seat. Nanea Mahuta is no longer in politics. Shane Tapo on the Herald Forum last night said that Labour had lost a generation of leaders. Hamish, what do you think about that? Do you think that's accurate? I think it's uh, a crushing defeat for Labour. Let's look at some of those seats you mentioned. Mount Roskill, that's Phil Goff's old seat. He held it for years. That's likely to turn blue. Mount Albert, Jacinda Ardern's old electorate, which it looks now that Helen White has a slim majority and who knows what happens after specials or uh, whether there's going to be a recount there. But Melissa Lee uh, was, was leading that for a big chunk last night. And these are Labour strongholds. Teatatu, so uh, that's on a knife edge as well. You've got these really formally popular Labour seats in Auckland that are turning blue or at risk of turning blue. And no one would have necessarily thought that would be the case last night. But with Michael Wood, it's obvious what's happened there. People were sick of what happened with the shared disclosure. 
with some of the others. Phil Twyford has hardly um, performed as a minister when he was one and um, as, a, uh, as an MP. So people have just turned against uh, Labour, even in what were once safe seats. If I were a Labour politician, I would be a little bit peeved at the Greens, though, given that a lot of vote splitting has led to those seats being quite close. So Matt Albert's a really good example of that. Ricardo Menendez March ran a really strong campaign in Mount Elba to try and turn that green. It's ended up becoming a really cr- close race between Labour and National. So do you think that relationship with the Greens is becoming a bit more combative, a bit more competitive, Georgina? I think the Greens have just been really inspired by Chloe Swarbrick and her 2020 campaign in Auckland Central. And I think that's kind of almost changed the Greens thinking. You know, they're thinking, okay, like let's actually try and seriously make a play for some electorate seats instead of just, you know, party vote green. That definitely is splitting votes. And it was interesting, you know, watching Wellington Central, which is a huge one for the Greens this time around. But there was a poll that sort of showed, you know, the Labour candidate national and and the Greens kind of neck and neck. And I thought, oh my gosh, like, you know, is the left going to split the vote and national's going to come through, um, you know, for a seat that is very Labour. But yeah, I mean, I mean, certainly in Wellington, for example, Wellington's really gone against the right-leaning tide. And I think we saw a similar situation in local body elections last year when Wellington elected Mayor Tori Fano and Auckland elected um, Mayor Wayne Brown. So it's quite interesting too to see um, the Greens kind of really consolidate some power in Wellington. It's, it's also looking like Julianne Gento will take Rongatai. What do you guys make of the fact that the Greens are now controlling those metro centres? Because with the Greens taking hold of Wellington City and then of Auckland City, I mean, that points to the future. That points to the future of that left-leaning bloc. Are the future, the voters of the future thinking more green than what they are Labour? Does that mark a shift in who the opposition could be in the next decades? I think um, it's important to look at, at the people who have, have taken those seats, like Chloe Swarbrick and Tamitha Paul. They're both young women aged in their 20s, and it's great to see younger politicians sort of come up the ranks and can actually mobilise and potentially inspire a different part of the population that might have been disengaged with politics previously or, you know, might be tempted to just vote how they, how their family votes if they're quite young. And so I can definitely see Tamitha Paul and Chloe Swalbrook being the future of the Green Party. It'll be interesting to see what James Shaw does in the coming term, whether he'll stick it out. Who knows? The Front Page is the New Zealand Herald's daily news podcast. And for more political news, analysis and podcasts, head to nzherald.co.nz. It does sometimes feel that Labour currently does have a vacuum of talent and a vacuum of clear leaders who will step into those roles following the departure of some key figures within the party, whereas the Greens have a lot of energy, they have a lot of new MPs that have come in and done a good job. So Hamish, where do you think this could end up? For Labour, there's been speculation since the result last night that Chris Hipkins will have to step down. You saw on the Herald live streams Shane Tepo saying that that was the natural course for Chris Hipkins. He obviously didn't say so last night and Megan Woods this morning has said there's no plans for a leadership change at the top. But I'd look down at the Labour front bench and think, well, who from that group 
if Chris Hipkins goes, would actually step up. Grant Robertson, I don't know if he will stick around for a full term towards the end of the campaign with what happened with rulings on wealth tax and things like that. It didn't seem that his heart was perhaps in it quite as much as previous terms or campaigns. And so I just couldn't pick out of the group of Labour MPs who would be the next leader. Yeah, some people are saying Carmel Cipollone, others are saying David Parker. But David Parker's been... In, in a position of combating with Labour leadership. I mean, he stepped aside when it came to being the re- revenue minister, given that he didn't see his, his position as tenable, given the party's reluctance to adopt a wealth tax. Do you think, looking back, the decision not to pursue a wealth tax, it was a key error by Labour? It's just a vote killer, I think, for quote-unquote middle New Zealand. It's not something that I think that Labour could have put out there and had it reasonably contributed to their election success. Uh, it's something that a lot of people advocate for, but a bigger chunk just are against. And Chris Hipkins would have looked at those numbers and looked at polling groups or market groups and things like that uh, and just decided that the risk was too large. The other thing that was quite interesting was Kieran McAnulty, one of the rising stars of the Labour caucus, he lost his seat to Mike Butterick. What do you think that says about Kieran McAnulty and his potential to one day perhaps be the leader of the Labour Party, Georgina? Well, he's ranked 16 on Labour's list, so I've been sort of trying to work out what that means for him in terms of of coming back in. But I think, as you said earlier, referring to Shane, Shane Tapo about, you know, losing a generation of leaders. I was reading this morning a piece that Audrey Young wrote earlier this year. And, you know, she said if it were not for the fact that Michael Wood and Kitty Allen trashed their own reputations and were forced to resign as ministers, they would have been the obvious new leadership combination for Labour as leader and deputy in opposition. And, uh, you know, I think Michael Wood actually did have a pathway back, but now he's out of parliament. I think Carmel Cipollone or Grant Robert could make sort of like interim leaders. You know, I think um, if, if Chris Hipkins sort of goes before Christmas, they could just sort of look after things while the Labour Party uh, tries to sort itself out, which I think potentially could get quite ugly and quite messy. Another combination that's been floated, uh, as you say, is Kieran McAnulty and Ayesha Viral. So I think, um, uh, you know, if, if if they both make a return to Parliament, I think Ayesha Viral definitely will. Kieran McAnulty is still working that one out. That you know that that could definitely be a possibility. I mean, in fairness to Kieran McAnulty, like Wired Upper is um, sort of traditionally a blue seat. He took it in that 2020 wave. I think it was always going to be an uphill battle for him to keep it. Although you know he has a very relaxed style. Um, he's mm-hmm. quite in touch with rural New Zealand, quite blokey. And so he's sort of very likable in, in that sense. Um, he drives a ute. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he drives a ute. It does feel that Labour is going to have to rebuild in two different areas here. So you have the rejection of the Jacinda Ardern era of politics. And then on the other hand, you have the Maori seats that also turn to Te Pati Maori. Hamish, do you want to touch on what that means, given that Labour's always had a strong relationship with Māori New Zealand, and this seems to suggest that that seems to have fractured a little bit. I think it's credit to the way in which Te Pāti Māori has run their campaign. And you look at MPs, you talk about a next generation. Mai P. Clark, one of the youngest candidates in 170 years, to take a seat in Hataki Waikato off Nanai Mahuta, who'd been in Parliament for 27 years, I think it was. You've seen a party that's managed to galvanise support among Māori and, and credit to them. 
Labour will have a, a job to do building back trust with Māori voters, but uh, you could say that across in the general role as well. It's looking like it's going to be a real tough three years for Labour as they rebuild across the board. Race was a big talking point in this election, and uh, New Zealand wasn't the only one having some difficult discussions. Just across the ditch, Australia also went to the polls. The referendum aiming to create an Indigenous voice to Parliament failed with around 60% of voters ticking no. I mean, what can we make of the outcome of that decision and then the divisive debate in the context of ACT wanting a referendum on the Treaty of Waitangi and NZ First wanting referendums to replace conscience votes? I look at a referendum And I think, well, what would that question say? And what would be the practical implications of it? The treaty is embedded in terms of so much of New Zealand's jurisprudence and how policy is made. I just don't think it's a practical suggestion or implication that it is somehow unwound from all of that, even if that is something which a referendum came back and thought would be a good idea. Uh, I just think it's vote-grabbing from David Seymour that appeals to a certain base of ACT and they will vote for him. I don't see it actually getting any water and even if it was part of any coalition discussions and a bottom line, I just don't see it actually having uh, any flow through practical implications for the country. And some of that vote getting uh, or attempted vote getting seems to have backfired because if you look at how ACT was polling, it was steadily declining as we were leading into the final days in the lead up to this election. I think one interesting thing about ACT is that, you know, that they have been so strong for this whole term. They had so many MPs that got in in the last election. And I remember thinking, crikey, you know, like David Seymour's got a bit of a job on his hand keeping all of these MPs in line in terms of caucus discipline, but they have been disciplined. And so it's been fascinating to see him be so strong and act so strong. And those initial polling results really had them um, with an incredible party vote. And then when it actually came down to their campaign, to sort of see it disintegrate away was sort of incredible to me. We don't get the final votes until November 3rd. So Hamish, any predictions on where the next three weeks could end? It all comes down to those special votes and just how what that means for coalition discussions and just how much Winston Peters needs to be involved in things and how hardball he wants to play in extracting concessions from Christopher Luxon. That could really drag things out if those uh, negotiations get testy. Winston Peters has been around a long time. Uh, has been He's been involved in so many of the MMP uh, elections that we've had since 1996. I expect that he will push for a hard bargain and really try to get all he can. Uh, It just depends so much on what sort of bargaining power he's got and the leverage that he has from the specials, from things like the overhang and just where we end up. Yeah, look, I I think National will end up needing to call Winston. Um, I just think that majority is too close. The specials usually go left. Um, You know, I think some seats will be decided on the specials. And yeah, look, I hope there are a good stock of lollies for the press gallery because it's going to be that classic pacing of the black and white tiles and around Parliament as they wait for these talks to be thrashed out. Yeah, the only prediction I'm willing to make is that we can expect Winston Peters to be rude to a few more journalists in the coming weeks. Oh, the, I look the, the coming to it. the coming weeks, the coming hours, Damien. The coming hours. <laughs> <laughs> 
thank you for listening to this special episode of The Front Page and on the campaign. For more on election 2023, you can read more coverage at nzherald.co.nz. Thanks to our producers, Ethan Sills and Sean D. Wilson. And make sure you follow both podcasts on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts for more analysis and updates from this election in the coming days and weeks ahead. 